sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches. The past unburied. The books unsealed. The old celebration returning. Welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. Uh, all the books are on you are those used to research our show, and the individual to my right here, along with managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. Well, it's spring, and love is in the air. But maybe we won't talk about it. No, I just... Well... You know he does listen to the show. We can't just talk about it or him as if he's not listening. Okay, then. Well, what is his name? We'll say hello. Oh, Ryan, but I don't call him that. But uh, I can call him that. Um, yes. Hello, Ryan. Of course. Well, what do you call him? I, I don't want to say. Oh. Some sort of pet name, maybe? No, you should just call him Ryan. Well, what do you call him? You should say hello, too. Hello, uh... Hello what? Lord Davenport. It's his steampunk name. I, I told him it sounds like a sofa, but I guess people online do roleplay. I, I don't mind if that's what it takes to get you out of your head. Roleplay, huh? Well, maybe we should talk about something else. I don't mind roleplay, but I... <sighs> yes, uh, let's talk about something else. I uh, am hoping the current episode on the Hellfire Club serves to balance out the 20 minutes of Catholic lore from our last show. We'll be doing two... Look, on Ryan... I'm just going to call you Ryan, and I might as well do this here, because every time we chat, honestly, I get confused how far things are roleplay, basic things. You have to understand. I don't know what you're trying to say when you call me Lady Davenport, what to make of that, and how much I'm talking to a real person. I'm sorry, but there are just basic things. I feel like I don't know about you, and it's all been making me uneasy. And I just have uh, to say it. We don't. I don't even know if you have legs. I don't care if you don't, but I can't tell if that's part of your character or of you in reality or... Or even what is reality? He says he doesn't have legs? He says he has prosthetic legs. Oh. But he said they were brass, so I thought it was just a steampunk thing. Brass legs. But he wouldn't tell me, and was very mysterious, and acted hurt, and used his sad triceratops emoji. Maybe, maybe we should start the show. At least, I think it's a triceratops. That, that is a dinosaur, right? Yes. 
No one has brass prosthetics. They'd be plastic and steel or something. Or fiberglass. They might use silicone for part. I don't know, but I, I think we should start the show. Yes. I'll, I'll deal with this later. Episode 85, The Hellfire Clubs, Part 1. I am your host, Al Ridenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started this show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive monthly rewards, including a short bonus episode. We do have a special offer running till the end of April, a chance for new subscribers to win the 15-disc set All the Haunts Be Ours, a compendium of folk horror. And I'll have more on that at the end of our show. Gentlemen, Hellfire! You've probably heard of the Hellfire Clubs, if not the historical entity, at least one of its uh, fictional representations, perhaps in the uh, X-Men comics or a namesake 1961 Hammer film, or this episode of the British espionage show, The Avengers. I try to recreate exactly the days of the original Hellfire Club. The same atmosphere, excitement, and of course the same pleasures. The episode, A Touch of Brimstone, which uh, aired in 1966 in the UK, was banned in the US thanks to the lead character, Emma Peel, masquerading at a Hellfire meeting as the Queen of Sin. Something involving a leather corset, a spiked collar, and whips. The fiction around the Hellfire Club, however, also extends to what passes for history, all of which we'll be unpacking in this episode and the next. A little background for our exploration. The several Hellfire Clubs of 18th century Great Britain are actually just more flamboyant manifestations of the era's mania for forming clubs and fraternal orders. The Freemasonry was on the rise, along with less ideological, more playful uh, social groups. In London, movers and shakers gathered at the Kit Kat Club, or the Beefsteak Clubs, which embraced beef as a symbol of British prosperity and the ascendancy of the Whig Party. The Calf's Head Club embraced similar values, celebrating the decapitation of Charles I with feasts and stunts based around the head of a calf. A uh, pamphlet of the day condemned members as Never satisfied till the present establishment in church and state is subverted. Calling the roasted calves' heads employed 
the principal symbol in this diabolical sacrament. A 1735 edition of the London Magazine describes an uh, unruly event from February of that year. A bonfire being lit up before the door, just when it was at its height, they brought a calf's head to the window dressed in a napkin cap and cheering threw it into the fire. The mob were entertained with strong beer and grew so outrageous that they broke all the windows, forced themselves into the house and would probably have pulled it down had not the guards been sent for to prevent further mischief. Behavior like this would have been rare for the Calf's Head Club, but not so for much of the city's many gangs, the Knights of the Blue, the Bugle Boys, and the Mohawks, named for the Native American tribe, though unfortunately not sporting the associated hairstyle, occupying a peculiar position between the uh, loudish uh, street thugs and the aristocrat was something called the rake from the word rake hell which is uh, 18th century talk for hellraiser uh, specifically referring to womanizing drinking and gambling the rake is uh, always an upper class figure who's uh, squandering his health and family fortune on his uh, misdeeds you could uh, take Lord Byron, who figured into our Valentine's episode, as a particularly elevated example of the break. There uh, was a certain fashionable tolerance for and interest in such characters, who uh, frequently appeared in 18th and early 19th century uh, literature, uh, plays, operas, and art. Um, members of the uh, Hellfire Clubs tended to neatly fit this profile. The Marquis Thomas Wharton was a politician known for his involvement in what's called the Glorious Revolution, that is, efforts that saw James II exiled from England, and Thomas Wharton was also a rake. His contempt for Catholics, such as the exiled king, expressed itself in a uh, 1682 incident in which, during a drunken spree, he and some comrades broke into St. Mary's Church in Great Barrington, Gloucestershire, ripped up Bibles, cut the ropes in the bell towers, and may have done worse, according to rumors hinted at in a uh, debate in 1705 in the House of Lords, during which the Duke of Leeds called Wharton out as someone who had pissed against a communion table or done his other occasions in a pulpit. Uh, that is, deposited uh, another form of waste in the pulpit. Judging by Wharton's reaction, the rumor seems to have been true, as he was reported to have been... Very silent for the rest of the day. While this all does sound perfectly devilish, it was Tom's son Philip, who is actually believed to have founded the first Hellfire Club, an extremely gifted, if obstinate, child, Philip's misadventures began with his secret engagement at the age of 15 to a fiancé of uh, unacceptable social status. Learning of this, his father Tom is said to have died of grief, and young Philip was packed off by his mother to Switzerland uh, in the company of a, a strict French Protestant tutor, whom he abhorred. His escape from the chaperone is described in the 1864 publication, Chambers' Book of Days. 
he left behind him a bear's cub with a note to his tutor, stating that, being no longer able to submit to his treatment, he had committed to his care his young bear, which he thought would be a more suitable companion to him than himself. Young Philip then makes his way to France to the Jacobite stronghold of Charles Stuart, son of James II, uh, the very man his father had helped exile, thus beginning his lifelong career of very oppositional politics and journalism. Ironically, when he returned from the continent, George I, in an attempt to consolidate support, made Philip the first Duke of Wharton, a rare gesture given the troublemaker's age and lack of kinship to the king. Also around that time, Philip uh, marries that uh, young fiancé and drunkenly exposes himself at the wedding. He uh, quickly abandons her within a year or two, and his title he eventually sells back to King George in an unsuccessful attempt to pay off creditors hounding him over gambling debts and other unpaid bills. As for the Hellfire Club, information tends to be somewhat vague or unreliable. Lord Wharton, by implication at least, seems to have been its uh, primary mover and shaker. And the group's gatherings uh, first alluded to in a February 1720 issue of the publication Mist's Weekly Journal, which describes these London meetings as dedicated to blasphemous jests. And among these would be calling for a Holy Ghost pie at the tavern where they also might play with cards and dice on Sundays. Forbidden on the Sabbath, of course. The writer's outrage may be a bit tongue-in-cheek as he warns ladies passing hellfire haunts to shield their faces because of the whiff of brimstone when they pass. Lord Wharton is not mentioned by name in the article, but the shame Philip brought upon his father is likely alluded to in the description which, uh, under a pseudonym, describes the founder. Lord Dapper, whose name no longer has any reputation as it did in the days of his father. The next mention comes in a May 1721 article in Appleby's Journal, another uh, scandal-friendly publication, sometimes uh, said to have been uh, secretly edited by Daniel Defoe. And, uh, this one again describes the club's mission as uh, one of religious mockery, naming a couple taverns they allegedly frequented and claiming that their membership numbered 40 and included 15 ladies of quality, all of whom blasphemously masqueraded at their meetings under the names of biblical figures. It also suggests that upon the death of any member, that person would enter hell as a club ambassador. Though you could certainly write off much of this as scandal-mongering, either intending to sell papers or uh, smear political enemies, concerns about such impious groups were real enough that in April of 1721, the London Gazette reported on something sounding very much like the Hellfire Club. His Majesty have received information which gives great reason to suspect that there have lately been and still are in and about the cities of London and Westminster certain scandalous clubs or societies of young persons who might meet together and in the most impious and blasphemous manner 
insult the most sacred principles of holy religion, affront almighty God himself, and corrupt the minds and morals of one another. Called the... Act for the more effectual suppressing of blasphemy and profaneness. This measure was read before the House of Lords, and when a vote was called, a nay was voiced by a Lord Onslow, and was quickly seconded, perhaps not surprisingly, by Lord Wharton. His own words, as uh, rendered in the uh, 1740 publication, a collection of the parliamentary debates in England, would uh, offer uh, strong evidence that he was indeed the focus of Hellfire Club rumors, and at least in this context, eager to dispel these. He's uh, supposed to have said, He was not insensible of the common talk and opinion of the town concerning himself, and therefore he was glad of the opportunity to justify himself by declaring himself far from being a patron of blasphemy or an enemy of religion. And he went on to criticize the bill as one geared more to uh, solidifying Anglican hegemony than abolishing any real uh, threat to the public. While it's pretty clear that Wharton was at the center of the uh, Hellfire Club, there are no documents explicitly identifying other members, but there are some uh, likely candidates, including his friend, the Baronet Edward O'Brien, known as an extravagant gambler, and Rake, and uh, also George Lee, Earl of Litchfield, who was reported to have been whipped by an outraged bystander when he was found to be riding naked through the uh, Buckinghamshire countryside in the company of young women. 1721, the year the royal edict against blasphemous clubs came to a vote, also saw the issue of a pamphlet entitled The Hellfire Club, kept by a society of blasphemers which features an illustration of something described as a dragon's feast. That is a depiction of a group of men gathered at a table drinking, some slumped down in obvious intoxication, all of them masked, some as animals and others as devils. Half-naked women are also present, and the whole is overseen by a dragon, uh, which is perhaps a statue or a prop or perhaps the living embodiment of Satan himself. It's not really clear, and it is a rather unimpressive scale for that, but uh, I'll post that image in the show notes so you can decide. The uh, text below the illustration reads, Thus impious wretches, without fear or shame, feast and sing praises in the devil's name, deride those sacred powers they ought to dread, and live as if in hell before they're dead. While our uh, pop culture reimaginings of the Hellfire Club like to portray the group as uh, masters of the black arts, possibly sacrificing a virgin here and there, it's worth noting that even the most lurid descriptions of the Hellfire Clubs in the popular press of the day uh, fall short of representing the members as witches, which would be the uh, era's equivalent of the uh, later Satanist. Most of this likely has to do with the upper-class membership that didn't conform to the typical outsider profile of a witch. And though these were mixed-sex gatherings, the group was surely male-dominated, making witchcraft accusations less likely still. 
As witch hunting faded out in the 18th century, it seems that groups like the Hellfire Clubs may have represented a sort of uh, Enlightenment-era uh, transformation of the concept. The uh, forbidden frolics of the witch's Sabbath were still present in the group's hedonistic binging, but these gatherings were mostly stripped of the supernatural. Earnest invocations of the devil are replaced by uh, blasphemous utterances and acts of a more uh, prankish nature. Uh, a sense of naughty camaraderie fueled either by uh, atheism or an uh, anti-Catholic, sectarian, or uh, political orientation. In uh, any case, the uproar of 1721 seems to have put an end to uh, Wharton's uh, short-lived club, and in the following year he turned his attention to Freemasonry, becoming Grand Master of the Premier Grand Lodge of England in 1723. But uh, this, too, was short-lived thanks to Wharton's tendency to not play well with others. He was expelled the following year and, in response, founded another order dedicated to mockery, this time satirizing the Freemasons with something he called The Ancient Noble Order of the Gorgamons. According to a September 1724 announcement in the London Daily Post, this new order supposedly was founded by a Chinese emperor many thousand years before Adam one who had newly arrived in England and was looking for recruits. A few months later, another announcement in the British Journal made Wharton's connection all but explicit, referring to the Gorgamon's leader as a peer of the first rank, a noted member of the Society of Freemasons, who hath suffered himself to be degraded as a member of that society. Around this time, an absurd etching from the studio of William Hogarth appeared. It depicted the Gorgamons in ritual procession, a parade of ridiculously attired eastern sages, a dancing monkey and a fawning initiate tied atop a mule and a jeering crowd. The text in part reads, But mark, Freemasons, what a farce is this! How wild their mystery, what a bum they kiss. Who would not laugh who such occasions had? Who would not weep to think the world so mad? The organization apparently picked up a life of its own and lasted for some time, going on, however, without Wharton, whose uh, rakish misadventures we'll uh, return to at the end of our show. While information on London's Hellfire Club and its membership is sketchy, this is far from the case for the Dublin Hellfire Club, founded around 1735. There's even a painting portraying one of their meetings, which hangs in the National Gallery of Ireland. The five members who are shown gathered around a punch bowl have been identified as men of generally high social standing, um, and two are particularly important to the discussion. That would be Richard Parsons, 1st Earl of Ross, who probably founded the group. And his, the other is his right-hand man, James Warsdale, the artist who painted the scene. Warsdale's uh, career as an artist seems to have been fueled less by talent than uh, his lively wit and aggressive approach to clients. 
He also appears to have um, written some ballads and plays in which he also acted, and uh, generally did all the things Rakes did, uh, which in his case included an affair with his landlady's daughter, one said to have resulted in him being chased through the streets of Dublin by the angry mother brandishing a still warm from the table shoulder of mutton. Though born in England, Richard Parsons' family moved to Ireland, uh, to County Wexford, when he was young. He seems to have uh, frittered away much of his opportunity in those uh, typically rakish ways, but did involve himself in Freemasonry before his uh, Hellfire days, and served as the Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Ireland from 1725 to 1731. He's uh, also supposedly the author of a book called Dionysus Rising, which is inspired by a trip to Egypt and his discovery of scrolls saved from the Library of Alexandria before it burned, and material from these he used to create an order known as the Sacred Sect of Dionysus. However, I see no mention of this book before 2005, when some individuals in New Orleans began claiming to have in their possession one of only two existing copies, which served them as the foundational document for their very own revived order of Dionysus. So, people who still know how to not let the truth get in their way of having fun. Something I'm sure Richard Wharton and his uh, Gorgomons would have approved of. The uh, painting I mentioned also makes clear that Dublin's Hellfire Club was a convivial group, much dedicated to drink, which is going to apply to all the Hellfire Clubs we discuss. The uh, particular drink they seem to have invented, or at least uh, popularized, is uh, called Scaltine, a milk punch combining whiskey, milk, melted butter, whisked eggs, sugar, and a dash of pepper. And I'll share a recipe to our patrons, perhaps. The uh, club was known to meet on Cork Hill at the Eagle Tavern, a site now occupied, ironically, by a Quaker meeting house. However, the location most associated with the group is an old stone hunting lodge on a mountain, Montpelier, just outside the city, and that site has become synonymous with the order, so much so that Dubliners tend to refer not only to the lodge building, but the open area around the lodge, where people actually sometimes camp, as the Hellfire Club. While there's no explicit record of activities happening there, it was rented at one point by Richard Parsons. The uh, owner, a uh, William Connolly, oddly enough, had originally purchased the property from, of all people, Philip, the Duke of Wharton, though it doesn't seem that Parsons knew about this. Whatever use the club did or did not make of the building, the site is appropriately gothic. Even at the time they used it, it was partially in ruins. The lodge had been built atop an old pagan cairn and passage grave, and the structure incorporated stones from the site, and the uh, structure's missing roof was said to have been destroyed by the devil as punishment for disturbing this uh, ancient gravesite. Unsurprisingly, given the Irish gift for storytelling, there's a rich folklore that grew up around Dublin's Hellfire Club. In particular, the club is imagined on uh, Montpelier. A fair number of these stories are fairly recent. Uh, a tale first recorded in the 1930s tells of a 
mysterious stranger showing up one stormy night and asking for shelter. He's invited in and joins the men at cards, doing unusually well, a bit too well perhaps. And when one player drops a card and bends to retrieve it, he glimpses a cloven hoof protruding from the stranger's pant leg. His true identity revealed, the devil disappears in a ball of flame. According to some tellings of the tale, the lodge's missing roof was destroyed by that fireball's ascent into the sky, uh, though you, I guess it should be headed the other way, you'd think. Many of the tales are much less whimsical, portraying the club as engaging in uh, animal and human sacrifice, usually a human dwarf or a black cat. A particularly gruesome version has the members slowly roasting the feline over the course of four days, at the end of which the devil would appear to grant their wishes. Here's another tale featuring the common black cat motif, but in a more pleasant way, I think. It's from uh, Albin Peters' 1907 book, Sketches of Old Dublin. Of a certain black cat, there are several accounts. This animal belonged to the club and had a place at the dinner table when it was always served first, and any insult or neglect to it was regarded as an offense to be punished by the life of the offender. But the cat, in the end, is stated to have been the cause of the dissolution of the club, for the story goes that a country clergyman, although he knew no member of his profession ever entered this club room, declared once, when in Dublin, that if he was invited, he should feel it his duty to attend. He got the invitation and went, and his curiosity was so far aroused at seeing the cat helped first, that he inquired as to the reason, and received for an answer from the gentleman who was carving, that it was out of respect for age, as they believed it to be the oldest individual in the company. The clergyman replied that he believed so too, as it was not a cat, but an imp of darkness. The club rose en masse, and instant death awaited this rash speaker. He craved, however, five minutes to read one prayer which was granted, and during this interval the cat betrayed great uneasiness and indignation by means of yells and groans. Instead of a prayer, however, the wily cleric, it appears, was reading an exorcism which had the effect of making the cat assume its proper form of a fiend, and it forthwith flew away carrying the roof of the clubhouse with it while the now truly terrified members listened with respect to the earnest exhortations of the clergyman and decided to dissolve the club. As well as the building's missing roof, the lodge was also at some point damaged by fire. A number of legends attempt to explain this also. Either it was done intentionally to give the setting a more appropriately infernal appearance, either that or uh, members set fire to the place when uh, William Connolly refused to renew their lease. But a more uh, frequently told tale has it that a servant spilled a drink on one of the members and in a fit of pique, the offended party doused the servant in brandy and set him alight with the 
fire spreading wherever the poor man ran. The uh, villain in this story is usually given as the wealthy magistrate Richard Chapel Whaley, though there's no record of him actually being associated with the club. Perhaps it's his nickname, Burn Chapel Whaley, and his devilish reputation that uh, figured him in. Furiously Protestant Burn Chapel Whaley was rumored to spend his Sundays writing to the countryside, setting the light Catholic shrines, churches, and chapels. Probably this uh, story about Burn Chapel Whaley attempting to account for the fire damage was inspired by an actual murder, or murders possibly, uh, committed by the much-hated Henry Berry, uh, 4th Baron of Santry. He actually was one of the members, and he's depicted in the painting I discussed. And there's another version of a fire story replacing uh, Burn Chapel Whaley with Lord Santry with, in this case, the villain burning a servant, not at the meeting site, but in his home, and the servant being sick and bedridden when he's drenched with alcohol and satellite. This one's also probably pure legend, but as for the actual murder for which Lord Santry stood trial, uh, here are the details. As a particularly violent drunk, the Baron, who happened to be drinking in a tavern on Dublin's outskirts, one day uh, flew at one of his companions and the fight escalated. When the object of his fury flew through the back of the tavern, Lord Santry pursued him into the kitchens, where, for reasons unknown, he vented his wrath on a random tavern worker, running him through with his sword. Though convicted and sentenced to death, a royal pardon was obtained by his influential friends. Public outrage over not only the crime, but its pardon, reflected badly on the rakish company kept by Lord Santry, especially probably those who relished playing at being devils. After the trial of 1738, little more is heard of Dublin's Hellfire Club, at least little outside the realm of legend. However, even as Dublin's club seemed to be winding down, their official master of revels, James Warsdale, the painter, uh, seems to have uh, struck out on his own to found another club in Limerick, or County Limerick, uh, the nearby town of Skeeton. In fact, he executed another painting of that particular group, one also held in the National Gallery of Ireland. Uh, this group's meeting place was supposed to have been an 18th century brick structure adjacent to Desmond Castle, uh, a ruin built in the uh, 1200s. Hellfire clubs in County Clare and County Kildare are also mentioned, but uh, only passing references to these exist. The story about the Dublin Club and Burnchapel Whaley and the fire may have arisen through confusion with Whaley's son, Thomas Buck Whaley, who was a member of the Dublin Hellfire Club, or actually in 1771 resurrected a version of it, ironically christened the Holy Fathers. Tradition again places their meetings at the lodge on Montpelier, but these same traditions are intermingled with uh, tales of uh, kidnappings, murder, and even cannibalism, so it's hard to tease out much actual history for this group. 
particular activities of the Holy Fathers have uh, probably received scant attention as the group tends to be overshadowed by other uh, larger-than-life adventures of Buck Whaley. Uh, particularly known as a gambler, Whaley is sometimes remembered as Jerusalem Whaley. The uh, story behind this, uh, one autumn evening in 1788, Whaley was dining with the Duke of Leinster, who asked whether his companion might have any travel plans, to which Buck Whaley flippantly responded, perhaps he'd head to Jerusalem. At the time, the journey was more or less out of the question, as it involved passage through lands held by the hostile Ottoman Turks. When the Duke of Leinster dismissed the response as a joke, Whaley dug in, and before it was all said and done, a wager had been made, with Buck standing to collect roughly two and a half million in contemporary American dollars, if he could make it there and back. On October 8, 1788, Whaley, a retinue of servants, and a large stock of Madeira wine departed the Dublin docks, cheered on by a massive crowd. Adventures ensued, including a tense encounter with Ahmed al-Jazar, governor of Galilee, who had earned the nickname The Butcher. But by February of the following year, the adventurer had returned to collect the fantastic sum. Even uh, more fantastic was Whaley's ability to gamble away that fortune, and he was soon fleeing the country to avoid creditors, but not before placing another bet that he would live upon Irish ground without residing in Ireland. Something he achieved, it's said, by building his home on the Isle of Man, a top earth he'd imported from his homeland. A more pious story suggests his retreat to the Isle of Man was undertaken as more of a pilgrimage, an effort to purify his soul after a brush with the devil who'd become eager to claim his soul. Before we wrap up our first episode on the Hellfire Clubs, I wanted to mention one more related group, not exactly another Hellfire Club, but a club equally scandalous and not just by 18th century standards. It was founded in 1732 in the Scottish town of Enstra on the Firth of Forth. It only lasted a few years, but went on to spawn other chapters in Edinburgh, Manchester, England, and perhaps, according to rumors at least, St. Petersburg. It was called the Beggar's Benison, Benison being an old word for blessing. The name was inspired by a sort of naughty version of the St. Christopher legend. It involves King James V, who in this tale is himself something of a rake. He's been uh, wandering about disguised as a bagpiper so that he can more freely enjoy himself, and arrives at a shallow stream that he must cross. There he meets a lovely but poor young lady who offers to take him across. She's the beggar in question. Puzzled by the offer, as she clearly has no boat at hand, the king asks what she proposes, and she hikes up her petticoats and invites him to climb on her back so they may wade across together. When they arrive on the other bank, the king reveals his true identity, presenting the woman with the gold crown. In return, she gives him her venison. That is something involving him once again climbing atop her. 
According to Club Lore, this adventure inspired the king to found the very first chapter of The Beggar's Benison. As you have by now inferred, the club was all about sex. A fraternity devoted to the sharing of erotic art and literature, dirty songs and toasts, and the presentation of frank lectures on sexual topics, sometimes of a scientific nature, such as uh, these lectures said to have been presented on St. Andrew's Day, 1733, entitled The Engendering of Toads, The Menstruation of the Skate, and the Gender of an Earthworm. While the membership was exclusively male, females also sometimes were present in certain roles, that is, uh, what were called Posture Girls. Uh, that is, uh, live models who would present themselves in various poses and states of undress. As you might guess, the club maintained itself in high secrecy. But in 1892, long after those involved had passed from this earth, an archive of club records was uncovered, and 250 copies were printed and very selectively distributed. They were only made more widely available a decade or so ago. Most shocking, perhaps, are descriptions of the initiation of new members in which the candidate was prepared by three senior members, or knights as they were called, preparing him in a closet by causing him to propel his penis into full erection. When thus ready, he was escorted with four puffs of the horn before the brethren or knighthood and was ordered by the sovereign to place his genitals upon the testing platter, which was covered with a folded white napkin. The members and knights two and two came round in a state of erection and touched the novice penis to penis. Outrageous as it all sounds, there is further proof of the club's existence in the form of artifacts preserved in the Museum of the University of St. Andrews in Fife, the collection includes uh, sashes and seals, uh, medals, and uh, ceremonial glassware, some of which is in a phallic shape. There's also a snuff box packed with ringlets of pubic hair, supposedly donated by George IV and removed from the royal courtesan. Uh, pubic hair collecting seems to have been something of an obsession with the group, with uh, members of the group encouraged to make uh, presentations and donations of their own collections. An offshoot of the Beggar's Benison, the Edinburgh Wig Club was organized around a sacred relic, an entire wig likewise constructed from the pretty hairs of uh, courtly courtesans. The wig stand survives as part of the museum's collection but it seems someone has uh, made off with the wig itself a long time ago. To uh, close, I'd like to share some uh, final bits about Lord Wharton and Richard Parsons of the uh, London and Dublin clubs. Uh, two tales related to their final days, one of them tragic and one humorous. The first, as told in the 1864 volume, Chambers' Book of Days, which we've heard from earlier, uh, details Lord Wharton's final days, which were spent in Spain. 
His dissolute life had ruined his constitution, and in 1731, his health began rapidly to fail. He found temporary relief from a mineral water in Catalonia, and shortly afterwards, relapsing into his former state of debility, he again set off on horseback to travel to the same springs. But ere he reached them, he fell from his horse in a fainting fit near a small village from whence he was carried by some Bernadine monks to a small convent near at hand. Here, after languishing for a few days, he died at the age of 32 without a friend to soothe his dying moments, without a servant to minister to his bodily sufferings or perform the last offices of nature. Thus, in obscurity, and dependent on the charity of a few poor monks, died Philip, Duke of Wharton, the possessor of six peerages, the inheritor of a lordly castle, and two other noble mansions, with ample estates, and endowed with talents that might otherwise have raised him to wealth and reputation. And on a lighter note, we have the deathbed scene of Dublin's Richard Parsons, a prankster to the end. As he lay dying, he received a letter of concern from the vicar of his parish, a uh, 1761 edition of The Gentleman's and London Magazine, describes the contents of this message as... Reminding him of his past life, the particulars of which he mentioned, such as a whoring, gaming, drinking, rioting, blaspheming his maker, and in short, all manner of wickedness, and exhorting him in the tenderest manner to employ the few moments that remained to him in penitently confessing his manifold transgressions and soliciting his pardon from an offended deity before whom he was shortly to appear. Rather than being addressed to Richard Parsons by name, the salutation was simply formulated as My Lord. Which seems to have provided the mischief maker with an idea. He instructed his servant to seal the letter in a new envelope and re-deliver it to a local gentleman of a painfully pious reputation, the Earl of Kildare. The Earl's horror upon reading the letter, which can only be imagined, sent him rushing to Dublin's Archbishop, demanding he summon the letter-writing vicar to account for such wild accusations. Sadly, however, Parsons was not able to enjoy any of this. By the time the mystery of the letter had been puzzled out, Richard Parsons had passed from this life on to, well, who's to say? Hellfire! Make scorch and sin, fern and boil, seed and scald, hellfire, roasted, hellfire, roasted, hellfire, grilled, hellfire. When can I join? I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to leave a review if you do. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we have a special offer running from now until April 30th. A chance to win the 15-disc set 
All the Haunts Be Ours, a compendium of folk horror. It's a splendid collection, released in conjunction with the folk horror documentary, Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, which is one of the included discs. Not only does it include over 31 hours of folk horror films on Blu-ray, but also three CDs, including a reading of a classic Arthur Machen story and a 156-page book on the folk horror genre. I've uh, posted a link with the film list and further details on the website in the uh, show notes, so you can see the list of the 19 films included and all the other details. The value of the collection is $279, and a randomly chosen subscriber at the $4 monthly level or above will be announced on May Day. To enter, you must subscribe on the uh, once-yearly plan, which actually saves you 15% on what you would otherwise pay monthly. And I should note that we don't have an overwhelmingly large number of entrants at this time, so your chances of winning so far are rather good. As for our regular Patreon rewards, those subscribing at the $4 level or higher receive a short extra episode, a reading from something in our library, given the bone and sickle soundscape treatment, of course. Other rewards include access to our Patreon blog, downloads of the show's soundscapes, which you hear under the narration, uh, show scripts, my Krampus book, the bone and sickle candle, and unique and hand-packed mystery kits, now including certain handcrafted items by yours truly. Pledge commitments begin at only $1 and can be edited at any time. I'd also like to thank our recent signups now enjoying those rewards. These kind souls include Arno Pelto, Michael Vaughn, Leslie Houghton, and Carl Hamlin. Bone and Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening.